What is going on, everybody? Welcome back. Episode 15, we get to actually use as a way of rounding out the Barry family stories. Super excited about that. You've heard from Chris, of course, from mom, from Megan, my episode um, about a week ago, and and now finally dad. Uh, I joke that everyone kept saying, where's your dad? Is he involved? Is he around? Of course he is. Of course he's been behind the scenes, and he's been, uh, as he mentions, waiting with bated breath to come on. So very thrilled to have dad on. Chris is back to join us uh, along with dad to give his additional and usual color commentary. Um, and really overall, we just had such a great discussion, one that um, we haven't really had before. So it was it was healthy. It was awesome. Uh, there's a ton that comes out of this. It's interesting to hear the perspective uh, from my dad's uh, background growing up. Um, he definitely has um, some history to share and he goes right into that at the beginning. Uh, and then he gives his perspective on Chris's story, um, specifics that he remembers, and then um, specific advice on enabling as we've heard many times before, uh, as well as just the convenience or inconvenience of this disease um, as it affects family members. And it's really interesting, his perspective uh, to hear. So as I mentioned, uh, we, the five of us, now have our stories out in the open. That is the purpose of this podcast. We're thrilled to have the chance to get to this point, to be able to share all of our stories with you. Certainly, there are many more details that we aren't able to share in these short sessions, um, but we're always open to uh, your questions and additional content text if you need it. Um, and then the other thing I'll mention is, you know, if if anyone has any other stories that you'd love to, to see featured on Faded, or if you know of, of anyone going through unique situations where uh, Faded and this platform might be of help, please let us know. Please reach out. Um, it's all about the storytelling. It's all, in, all about being open to one another's stories and, and understanding what others are going through. Uh, really, that's, that's the beauty of it. And hopefully through this story, uh, you get a great uh, full picture of the Barry family and what we've been through. Uh, so great to have Chris back and dad. We love you so, so much. Um, we we joke um, about calling you Big Tim, Big T, Chef Tim, whatever you want to call it. But we just, at the end of the day, we all look up to you so much. We adore you. Uh, we want to be you. So uh, thanks for joining us. Can't wait to have you back on again. And for everyone else, uh, enjoy the show. do this well welcome back everyone faded podcast episode 15 the highly anticipated wow. uh i know 15 right the highly anticipated episode no we did not forget about him yes he's been listening in yes he's been a part of this all along episode 15 welcome our dad big tim big t the baller of the universe welcome to faded podcast finally Thanks, Jack. I'm not sure I deserve that type of introduction, but I appreciate it. Of course we've you been, uh, We've been waiting for this for quite a while, and uh, I've been waiting <clears throat> with breathless anticipation uh, <laughs> because I think we can have a good conversation. We can. And Chris, welcome back, as always. Hello. Hello. We're doing the best we can here, again, because of physical distancing and real distancing between where we actually are by state. 
Um, we're all recording separately. So thanks everybody for the patience listening in. And we are so thrilled to have you on dad finally to tell your side. So uh, let's just jump in. I would love to start um, as we do and as we have for most of our guests. Um, tell us a little bit about you. Who is Tim? Uh, and mainly let's start kind of in your background as a kid. Where'd you grow up? Um, what was your family like? Any color um, on you before you knew any of us, mom, anyone like that? Okay. <laughs> so I was born in Bronxville, New York. My mom had me at a very young age. She was about 21 when she had me. Um, she had been to Mount Holyoke College for a couple of years, met somebody uh, in the summer. My biological dad met him in the summer working in Rockport at a restaurant. And they fell madly in love. And, you know, it was a little awkward for my grandfather because he said, you know, balancing college for mom and, you know, this relationship, which turned out to be very, um, you know, pretty strong and serious. Uh, he, I, I believe he gave her an ultimatum, which was, look, you can either go to school and finish out your degree and have a career and do all that, or you can get married and have children and have a more traditional, you know, I mean, at that point in the late fifties, I think it was very traditional for young women to do that. So she chose to continue the relationship, mm -hmm. left school, uh, got married, and then very quickly after that had me. And they were living in New York City at the time. My uncle, I believe, had gotten my biological dad a, a job at International Paper. My uncle was a an up-and-coming executive there. And so they were in New York and had me in Bronxville. And <clears throat> one of the things I think is important to the story is I never knew my biological dad. I knew him when I was two, three years old, or probably two years old, but never knew him uh, because my mom had to leave. Uh, he was physically and mentally abusive to both my mom and me, which I learned later in life. Of course, I didn't know it at the time. And come to find out later in life also that he was a raging alcoholic and addict and i don't think she had a lot of experience with that or, or knew a whole lot about it and it became a situation where she had to get out of there and so there's some legendary stories about how it all transpired but my uncle and my grandfather you know went to her place in new york uh gathered up all her belongings and gathered, you know wrapped me up in swatted clothes and whatever else and then uh, went back to south hadley which is in western massachusetts yeah and that's where my mom and I then uh, lived, uh, you know, for, for a good period of time. And when she got there, uh, she didn't realize it, but she was pregnant with my brother, Ted. So here, here she was, the youngest of five kids living in New York City. And all of a sudden shows up on her dad's doorstep and now not only has a kid, but one on the way. Right. So the early part of my life was growing up, really the recollections I have are growing up in South Hadley with my grandparents living in their home with my mom. Now the good news is my mom went back to college, mm -hmm. uh, finished her degree, then went to Wesleyan University down in Middletown, Connecticut for another year and a half or so and got her master's degree and then was able to go off and get a teaching job and support us on her own. Uh, but I, I think that background is somewhat important to the story because we've got this 
genetic addictive, um, you know, problem in our family. Uh, and it's, you know, it's, it's something, as I said, I, I never knew my biological dad, but I knew the history of that. Right. From, from there, I had a very, very cool, normal, great childhood living with my grandparents. My mom was away quite a bit because she was back at school. And so my grandfather and grandmother were the ones that sort of raised us. Um, you know, my grandfather's the one that taught me how to play, throw a baseball and a football. And we did a lot of that. There was a lot of local activity around South Hadley and little league sports and that kind of thing. And so we did an awful lot of that. And, and I, you know, just loved living with my grandparents. They were my heroes and never made a peep about, you know, being, sort of burdened by this or anything else. I mean, if you think about it, my grandfather was probably 61, mm -hmm. 62, when all of a sudden he thought, you know, all five of my kids are gone and they're on their own. Now we can start living it up. And <laughs> all of a sudden you get a couple of kids and a, and a daughter back in with you. So, you know, that's, that's a little bit of the background. As I said, I had a great childhood. The, the folks in my neighborhood and the people on my you know, little league teams and things like that never made it a big issue that there wasn't a dad around our house. It was yeah. not a big deal at all. So I never really felt like I was missing out. And there were, you know, there must have been some kind of a pact in the family uh, about what people were going to say, because I never heard really a word about uh, the divorce or my, my dad, my biological dad from there. Um, so it wasn't something that was burdening to me. I didn't, you know, we didn't have a situation where he was around. Um, so, you know, it wasn't like we had visitation and I had to go to two different houses and all that kind of thing. I just, I had what I felt was a very normal upbringing. I think my mom tried very early on to explain why I didn't have a dad around for a number of years. Yep. But didn't, I mean, how do you tell a four-year-old or whatever, you know, why your dad's not around? And I, I think, you know, I think the explanation was that he was sick and, you know, he was, um, I, I know one was. of the, one of the things which he was absolutely. Hmm. And, and one of the things I remember, I don't ever remember stories about drinking alcohol or doing drugs or any of that. I, I do remember a story or, or a mention of him, you know, being so bad that he would go to the drugstore and buy bottles of, of cough syrup because, because it had codeine in it. And so that's how he would try to get his fix if he couldn't get anything else. Mm. Um, but for a young kid, it's, it's an awfully tough thing to try to comprehend is, you know, why would anybody drink cough syrup? That doesn't make any sense to me. So yeah. um, there wasn't a lot of alcohol around. I can tell you my mom liked to have a drink or two. In fact, she told me a funny story that when she was pregnant, and she talked to the doctor. He said, you know, I'd really rather you not smoke. She was a smoker. Yep. Um, and if you're going to drink, drink scotch. So I'm not sure what it was about <laughs> what they were doing with medicine back in the late 50s. But hey. um, her advice was, if you're going to drink, drink scotch. So she drank scotch. and uh, My kind of doctor. <laughs> yeah, I remember that. Um, but in terms of there being alcohol around or any of that, th th there really wasn't. I don't ever remember, for instance, us having wine with dinner or there being, you know, cases of beer in the fridge or a liquor cabinet or anything like that. I don't remember any of it. Now, of course, I was 
I was only between the ages of three and let's say seven at the time. So I don't know if I would have been exposed to it that much anyway. Um, I do remember that my grandparents, especially in the spring and summer, loved to have one cocktail at happy hour. It was always, it was always out in the backyard sitting in these folding beach chairs. And there was a particular drink that my grandmother loved and my grandfather drank it too. It was called a planter's punch. There was a company in Weymouth, Massachusetts called Brady Enterprises, which ironically I went to work for later on. And they manufactured uh, drink mixes that were in powder form. So you would, you would take, you know, a shot of alcohol and then some water or fruit juice or whatever else and put this powder in it and it would give it a particular flavor. And I remember the, the ritual was they would go have one drink every evening and, and that would be it. So that's kind of my, my background in terms of my early life. You know, my brother was three and a half years younger than me and and we grew up together. And, I, and, and then when my mom moved out of my grandparents' house, we moved to West Springfield, which is probably for about three years or so. And I remember being latchkey kids. My mom had to get up every morning at 6 a.m. and leave for work. And the elementary school where Ted and I went was within walking distance of where we lived in West Springfield. So I learned how to make omelets at an early age and learned how to uh, take the, the carnation instant milk out of the the box in powder form and mix that in the blender with some ice and some water. And, yep. you know, Ted and I would have our breakfast and then we'd walk off to, to school together. Um, we'd come back in the afternoon and there was a woman that was a wonderful, lovely woman in our apartment building, Mrs. Sullivan, I'll never forget it. And she actually was sort of there along with the guy who was sort of managing the property. They were there to sort of watch out for us when we'd get home. Um, but there was a period of time there for a couple of years where Ted and I were, you know, certainly on our own quite a bit, probably not as much as I would recollect. Um, I don't think we were in danger or anything like that. Uh, but it was an interesting situation where, you know, we, we grew up as two brothers who had to sort of look out for each other, even though he was much younger. Um, you know, we, we got used to being on our own and doing our own thing uh, quite a bit. Yeah. And then, then fast forward a few years, my mom met uh, a guy named Jim Barry. We, we, we often would visit my cousins in Situate, which is on the South Shore of Boston, especially during the summer. My aunt Mary Lou had kids that were about the same age as Ted and me, a little, little bit older, but we, she had four kids that were around our age. We all got along, and so we would frequently on the weekends go up to Situate and spend the weekends up there. So anyway, one night, my aunt and my mom were out, I don't, I don't know, on a date or doing something. And she met Jim and then, you know, they struck up a friendship. And then he became, you know, quite frequent visitor over to West Springfield. And he was involved in our life quite a bit. Um, and then they ended up in 1970, they got married in the summer, July 1st. I'll never forget that. And... Uh, he ended up adopting Ted and me so that we all had the same last name. Cause for the first 11 years of my life and the first seven or eight years of Ted's life, we were, we were Sullivan's. My, my biological dad's name was Sullivan. So I was a Timothy Sullivan for a long time. And then Jim adopted us and that was just a great thing. Mm -hmm. um, he was a wonderful guy. 
uh, we ended up that's after sixth grade for me in West Springfield. Uh, we packed up during the summer and moved to a new house that my mom and dad bought in Hingham. And then I grew up in Hingham and went through high school there and, and uh, started my college years there. And, um, you know, just lived on the ocean, had a boat accessible to us at all times. And just, you know, it was a really, really great way to grow up and had a, had a wonderful childhood. And, and we now had a, a great family together. I, I do remember that uh, Jim liked to drink Miller Lights mostly and then vodka and tonics. So that kind of was my indoctrination into the whole world of alcohol is, you know, kind of drink of choice for Jim was Miller Lite and vodka tonic. So mm. that's that's kind of what I was introduced to sort of, you know, around those early teenage years. Yeah, you had such great parents and we um so jim as we call him big jim because we call dad big tim um so many great memories with both of them i i can't believe still that you're not his blood because you guys are so similar and um just such great people so glad that we can mention them here on the podcast too that's important <laughs> yeah yeah no i appreciate that jackie yeah so high school college years you'd say i mean fairly normal for a college kid right yeah, I would say so. I during my senior year in high school, I, I thought for sure I was going to go to music school. I played in the in the in the band, the orchestra, the jazz band, the marching band. I was president of the band. I, I just I loved everything that was about music. And then, but the summer between my junior and senior year, Data General, which is a mini computer company up in you know the western suburbs of Boston. Um, just dropped a mini computer off on the loading dock at the high school. And one of the math teachers, you know, grabbed it and built a computer lab. And they offered a basic computer programming course my first semester of my senior year. I had already had enough credits to graduate. I was kind of cruising through senior year, taking, you know, electronics and band and a few other things. And I took this programming course and just for whatever reason, just it, it just hit me that this is what I love to do, you know, being able to tell a, a machine to perform different tasks and generate certain output and, and just being able to manipulate this thing any way I wanted was just very cool to me. So uh, during this class one day, this math teacher said, hey, I've got a friend who owns a computer software consulting company here on the South Shore, and they're looking for an apprentice. So there were five or six of us from the class that went and interviewed for this job and I got the job. So I ended up being on sort of a work study plan where I would go to school, you know, till 11 o'clock every morning, I'd leave, go grab something for lunch. And then from noon to six every day, I would work at this computer consulting company doing programming. And, um, and I, I just got the bug and I was making money. And so I was supposed to go off to Worcester Polytech where, Mark Lefebvre and I knew each other. We were fraternity brothers. And I had been accepted there and decided that instead of music, I would go into computer science. And right before I was going to go and, and leave for school, this company that I mentioned earlier, Brady Enterprises, who was a client of ours at this computer consulting company, approached me and said, hey, you know, we really like the work you're doing um, and we know the school you're going to is relatively expensive. Would it be, would you have any interest at all in, in being an employee here and running all, all our computer software and hardware for us 
you know, for, for the next year so you could save up some money for school. So I was pretty intrigued by that and ended up making that decision. Uh, ended up staying in Hingham at my parents' house that year, uh, saved up some money and then didn't go to WPI till the following year. Um, and so when you say, you know, did I have a normal, you know, high school, college experience, I, I think getting used to having my own money and my own freedom and, you know, all of that during that one year, uh, probably attributed to me not being the best student in, in college. Um, I, you know, it, it, it occurs to me now, or it's, it's obvious to me now that, I most likely should have gone to a liberal arts school. That's really where I was more talented. Uh, but, you know, this this aura of being able to get into computer science and, and make a lot of money and that kind of thing was pretty intriguing. I, I can remember thinking to myself one time, all the people that I knew that had music degrees were either unemployed musicians or high school music teachers. And all the people that had gone into some kind of engineering discipline were all driving around in fancy cars and had lots of money. And, <laughs> and so I, I just sort of made that decision um, and then went to WPI that following year. And that's where I met Mark. And then after uh, I decided to leave school because I had another offer uh, to be a computer programmer with, you know, a big company up in Lexington, Massachusetts. So I decided to leave school and go do that. And then I needed an apartment and Mark needed an apartment because he had just graduated from WPI. So we decided to get together and we lived together for a year or two. And uh, so I was commuting up to Lexington and just kind of hanging out with with friends. And, and that's where I met your mom is when Yay. we lived in that in that uh, apartment in Newton. I love it. And, and the stories, it's been fun getting to know Mark too, and having him be able to tell stories of you back in the day too. I love it. <laughs> so let's pivot further than into the story. So you and mom get together, you get married, you've had a couple kids, um, and eventually your career takes you down here. And when I say here, I mean, North Carolina. Um, and then our family, as we know it today, kind of grows up in North Carolina. And then we have, I've talked about this before a million times, but our life growing up together as a family was incredible. Music all the time. We're just kind of like always on an adventure, but like I remember nothing but just joy and wonderful love in our family, <laughs> which is the best. Yeah, it was good. And there was nothing like you guys know mom and dad always wanted us to have friends over in high school and it wasn't like hey have your friends over and come get drunk or come drink it was more so like just focused on hey let's have people over to hang out in the backyard by the pool and they never really um suggested that we all drink and never really like turned an eye we would hide it if we wanted to do it in high school but um everything was very normal and we were raised very well and we were taught how to be respectful and how to work hard for what we have. We weren't given everything that we wanted and we were taught to appreciate small things in life and the value of a dollar, you know? Yeah. And I agree. I don't remember any sort of craziness with alcohol. Um, I, I, I think I remember like sips of wine or beer. It's like, Hey, do you want to try this? And we weren't really into it anyway. So it was just kind of like, oh, yeah, sure. Um, I remember one time, this is just a funny side story. I remember Megan, trying a cigar and, and choking. She'll probably say that was me and that might've been me too. But anyways, <laughs> just very lighthearted. There were happy hours in the neighborhood. 
nothing crazy. So then we get into um, a little deeper and then um, dad, I would love to start to transition into Chris's story and, and just any recollection you have, um, I guess, of Chris and his like earlier years of, of maybe teenage years of when this started to go down and maybe you didn't know, um, or maybe you had a hunch, like any red flags or anything you can think of before you actually learned that Chris was struggling with something. Yeah, we could talk about red flags probably for the whole episode. I, I think, <laughs> let me let me step back a minute and just give a perspective. This podcast has really helped me learn a lot about a lot of different things regarding addiction and, and genetics and behaviors and Chris's explanation of the 12 steps and, and why people behave the way they do and and can't get out of it. And it's just a vicious cycle and all that. That's all been very educational for me. And when Chris, and Chris, I don't mean to be talking about you while you're in the care. room. Do whatever you want. <laughs> when Chris talks about, you know, spiritual malady and, you know, something that's really deep rooted inside that is the root cause of the problem. At least that's my interpretation of it, that there's, there's something going on with your spirit that, you know, causes certain behaviors and other things to happen. The one thing I can tell you that I noticed about Chris early on was how he, he would get very angry um, or just seem like not happy in, in situations where I thought he should be. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I, you know, we talk about spiritual malady and all that. I, I think I've had some of that in my background and my past too. I, I, people don't necessarily believe this, but I, I tend to have less self-confidence than maybe people feel like I do. Uh, I, I've always questioned, you know, when I've been in positions of authority, you know, how much authority do I really have? You know, can I really make these tough decisions about people and personnel and all this kind of thing? And, and, you know, I, I never really grasped that. I don't know if it's the same thing, but I can remember, for instance, thinking a lot of times when Chris was younger, you know, what's going on with this guy? Like, this doesn't seem like it should be happening the way it is. I'll give you a couple examples. So I was a baseball player when I was younger and I loved to play baseball and I wanted desperately to live vicariously through Chris by him playing baseball. And we were living in Fuquay Verena at the time and took him down to little league and signed him up. And sure enough, like most other sports he plays, he was, probably the best kid on the team but he hated it he he used to come home I'd drop him off at practice and he would come home and I just remember him saying I hate baseball this is the worst thing in the world and everything else and I go talk to the coach and the coach would say this kid's got a lot of potential like he can hit he can field he's you know he's he's got a great arm like everything's great and Chris would would tell me that you know the coach would just yell and scream at him and nobody else and this is just one example. And Chris, I don't know how, if you have recollection of that, but I, I didn't believe it. I was like, you know, what's going on with Chris? Because he's coming home telling me that this coach is an, a real jerk and all he does is yell and scream at him. And, and I said to Chris, well, he may, you know, be a loud vocal co- coach and that may be his style, but I'm sure it's not just you that he's yelling at. I'm sure he's probably yelling at lots of kids on the field if he's yelling or using a loud voice. And, and Chris was frustrated because, you know, I wouldn't believe him when he said he was the only one. So one day I dropped him off at practice and I pretended to leave 
And I came back and parked the car and I watched the practice and sure enough, the coach was yelling at him and nobody else. <laughs> so I didn't really understand what was going on, but I remember that there were times like that in Chris's life. A lot of times when he was playing sports where I thought he should be really happy and having a blast of fun and all that. And, and, and he wasn't. So Chris, I don't know if you have any recollection of that or whether it's even relevant, but I, I saw some of those things and I, I would scratch my head. You know, you said, Jackie, are there any red flags? I would scratch my head at certain situations and say, you know, what's going on with this guy? Yeah. I, I remember feeling, I never felt like I was left out or like I was, um, not welcome in places, but I definitely did feel that quote unquote spiritual malady growing up where something was just kind of like off. Like I didn't feel like I wasn't fitting in or wasn't good enough. I just felt a little bit of unhappiness internally and it had nothing to do with my external circumstances because they were all great. It was just something about my spirit and my mind that wasn't fully content and uh, where it could be so yeah it's interesting because i actually remember back to jason's story where he said a very similar thing he was like i you know growing up i always remembered wanting to play wanting to play football but he said i always remembered feeling differently than people around me and i i've always you know that that's intriguing to me too and and chris i don't know if you know the answer to this but is is that something that is common i guess in the the people that you see in recovery is it is it fairly common to have people root back to things like from when they were pretty young or is it just case by case yeah for the most part it is yeah. um i mean not everybody feels like they're off as a kid but from the people that i've spoken to you know it's it's um pretty common for people who end up being in recovery or uh, addicted to something to feel off and to feel like something's missing, you know? Yeah. Really interesting. And so dad, I mean, you're so, you know, that, that's a pretty intuitive kind of more deep seated thing. Um, as, as Chris got a little older, I know you have some specific stories of like, Oh, that's, you know, like the vodka in the glass and things like that. But is there, is there anything else before you learned that really stands out to you as, as something that made you go, Oh, wait a second. Yeah. There were a number of things that I thought were a little off. Um, and, and so let me give a couple examples. So you, you mentioned the vodka in the glass. I remember one day, or one evening going to my kitchen to cook dinner and Chris was sitting on the counter sort of across the room and I was getting all the pans out and getting ready and whatever. And I looked on the counter and there was a, a milk glass that was three quarters of the way full <laughs> with what looked like water that. to me. And I picked it up and I was, I smelled it and, it and I tasted it and it was pure vodka. And I, I just looked at Chris and I said, what's this? And he just kind of gave me that, wry smile that he has and shrugged his shoulders and says, I have no idea. Mm -hmm. And I, I, you know, that's, it's one of the things that was probably prevalent in our family during that time, during the time when Chris was beginning this journey and, and struggling was, you know, I was away a lot, so I didn't see a lot of, of what happened and I'm not using that as an excuse. It's not like I don't want to take responsibility. But a lot of times when I saw certain red flags or signs that something might be wrong, I, I didn't necessarily 
look the other way. I would ask like, what's going on in this situation? And there was always some explanation and I would just sort of say, okay, well, I don't know what's going on here, but this is very strange. Like another example is the time that Chris came home and said, I need money because I was playing golf at Devil's Ridge and I was on the third tee box and I took my wallet out for some reason and now it's gone and I lost it and somebody must have stolen it. And, you know, everything, all my money's gone and everything's gone. And, and, uh, you know, situations where, you know, I, I would scratch my head and say, this kid has to be the most unlucky kid I've ever met in my life. Like things just happen to him that, that aren't normal. <laughs> and, and, you know, looking back on that, and I guess, you know, advice for people that are looking for, you know, signs that something might be wrong is if something doesn't seem right, it's not. Um, you know, I, I, there was another situation we had, this was later on, I think closer to when things really kind of came to a head, but I can remember we had friends from out of town for dinner and we took them to the Carolina Hurricanes hockey game. And I don't know, during, in between periods, one period, we were up in the lounge, you know, just kind of hanging out with our friends and Chris like ran up to me and said, dad, dad, I need, I need 40 bucks. I need 40 bucks or whatever, or 20 bucks or whatever he's asking for. Probably 40 at the Canes game. Yeah. And, and and I said, you know, what, like, don't you have your own money? And there, there was some explanation, like something happened, right? Like somebody stole it or I lost it or, and, and cause I knew he was working at the time and he had plenty of money. It wasn't like that. And I remember giving him 20 bucks or whatever I gave him and, and turning to my friend and saying, this kid just either is, he just doesn't get it or he's the most unlucky person I've ever met. Cause you know, he's always something, some situation is always just sort of not right with him. Yeah. And, and it wasn't like, I wasn't trying to, it wasn't like I was insulting him or I was trying to call him dumb or anything else. It was just, there were lots of situations in my interactions with Chris when I would just scratch my head, you know, mom would call me and say, this thing happened. And I'd say, you know, that doesn't happen. Like that doesn't normally happen. And and I know you said in one of the episodes that I I tended to be the most skeptical. And I I think, I I think the way I would look at it is I, I always tend to tended to ask questions when something didn't sound right but there was always some kind of a logical explanation you you always did that with all of us too you've always been that way you would say wait a second you were always the one to say wait a second no matter what it was big or small and with megan and me as well um so that that's what i was referring to it's like you you did always say huh but then generally your response to that was just okay well and then things would continue on right there wasn't any right generally with you there wasn't any like crazy consequence um of those things from what i recall at least right and and i would say in general and you guys can either confirm or not um i I would say in general mom was typically the disciplinarian and i was in support of her Mm -hmm. um one of the reasons was because every time i would try to reprimand you or raise my voice or whatever you guys would just all laugh at me so <laughs> I wasn't very effective <laughs> not every time you just would well, mess up your word or you'd try and be mean because you couldn't possibly be mean if you tried and you would mess up a word or something that it was like oh no you messed up that word We're gonna laugh. <laughs> <laughs> oh god the story that I don't actually think I know when did you find out 
that, like, when did you find out about Chris? I, I recall uh, coming in and, and seeing you after mom had called me. Um, she had dropped Chris uh, in Greensboro and, and drove back. And I know you didn't know at that point, but I, I assume, like, tell us about the conversation that night um, or how that went down, because I really don't think I've ever heard that story. Yeah, and I'll have to apologize, Jackie, because a lot of these stories kind of run together for yeah. me. Yep. Um, you know, I know that I didn't find out that he was in Greensboro at the facility until after mom got home. Right. Um, and I was just saying, you know, what do you mean? Like how this couldn't be this bad. Right. And I, I think, I think the first time Chris went to rehab, I didn't think it was going to be that big a deal. I thought he'd just go in there for a week and, you know, get sober and come back out and everything would be fine. And, and, you know, I didn't understand. I don't think any of us understood how deep he was into it at that point. I thought it was like, well, he's got a little bit of a problem. And yeah. Maybe he's smoking too much weed or doing whatever. But I, I mean, I think <laughs> the extent to which he was sort of underwater, even the first time, I don't, I don't think any of us really understood how bad it was. I certainly didn't. Yeah. And so I tended to try to be optimistic and say, he's going to go through this program. And we went to training there when, you know, we had to go there and go to classes and learn all about it and all that kind of thing. And, and then, you know, he made it through the program and, you know, told us he was sober and he was going to stay sober. And he did his farewell speech and said, you know, if you follow these steps, you're going to be fine. And, you know, then we just kind of went back to business as usual and then went through the next cycle and, you know, history repeats itself and it did. And each time I noticed that it was getting, it was getting worse in terms of his sort of involvement. But I, you know, but as, as I said earlier, a lot of this kind of runs together for me, like which rehab was this certain incident or that certain yeah. incident. Yeah. I don't really remember that. Um, I, I do remember that at some point, you know, we made a decision that he, he needed to be on his own and he couldn't live with us anymore. And, and part of that, and Chris, you, you may remember better than I do, but when I realized it was a serious problem was one, one day I was sleeping in. I don't know if it was during the week or I was just being lazy or whatever. Trying to take your money. I was sleeping in and I heard somebody come into my bedroom and from our bedroom, you could see directly into our master bathroom at the time. And I, I remember I pretended to be asleep and I, and I saw Chris in my master bathroom and I, when, whenever I came home from work or from a trip or whatever else, I would always take my wallet and my money and whatever I had in my pocket and I would put it in the far left drawer of the bathroom. It's just where I kept my stuff. And I saw him kind of going through that drawer and, you know, rooting, rooting around in there. And I, and I didn't say anything. I didn't like get up out of bed and say, what are you doing? I just kind of let him do his thing and then I'll let him leave. And then I went and, you know, I realized there was a little bit of money missing and I confronted him about it. And I, I, you know, I found him wherever he was. And I said, you know, why were you in my bathroom and why were you going through my drawer? And he completely denied it. And then, you know, his defense mechanism to me at the time was always to, to go on the defensive or go on the offensive rather mm -hmm. and say, you know, why do you think these things about me and none of it's true? And, you know, why do you, you know, he, he would, 
he would go on the offensive as the defense mechanism to just tell me I'm completely wrong and he wasn't in my bathroom and he wasn't rooting through my drawer and and you know I I would I would discuss it with him until the point I just couldn't anymore I would I would give up a lot of times because I knew he was lying to me but he wouldn't admit it and then that day I remember him later on in the day very calmly when we were sitting I think we were sitting in the media room and he looked at me and he said dad I took your money and I'm sorry Hmm. and you know he admitted it and I asked him why and he said you know I, I think he probably admitted that he needed to go get a fix and I think it was probably at that point where mom and I said you know that's got to be the end of it you know he's he's stolen from everybody in the family he never stole from me that I knew of except gallons of vodka over the years um, but you know I think we we made a decision at that point that you know, we couldn't handle him being in the house anymore if he's going to be stealing even from me. Mm-hmm. And that's when we, you know, told him he had to leave. Now, Chris, you may have a different recollection. I don't know if that timing was right or not, but that's that's the way I remember it anyway. I don't remember telling you about it that day, but I also don't remember not telling you about it. So, um, but I do yeah. remember taking it and you calling me out. And I was just like, what are you talking about? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The quick, the quick defense mechanism. No, but I mean, and you know, you, you did that same day later on in the day, approach me and actually say, dad, I took your money and I'm sorry. And I I think you were, you know, I think you were genuinely sad and sorry about it. And I think you, you know, you didn't want me to think badly of you. And um, I I never thought badly of, of you, Chris. I, I just, I was, I would say, I would say disappointment was always, you know, my biggest emotion not necessarily anger or anything else. I just, you know, lots of things in your life that, you know, I felt were sort of, I don't know how to describe it, but, you know, the SAT incident and then, you know, the the losing your wallet and crashing the car and all these things that, you know. I managed would, to cheat on the SATs, everybody, somehow. I mean, did you? I didn't think it was possible, but I made it happen, and I scored well. And I scored so well. It was the second time that I took the SATs. I scored so well that uh, because the first time, I'm not the most intelligent person when it comes to book smarts in school. And somehow I found somebody who had the exact same test at me as, as me uh, who was sitting like two seats away from me, and I – cheated off her and I got a really good score and they literally flagged it and they were like, there's no way this kid did this much better the second time around. He had to have cheated and they didn't count it. (laughs) Yeah. And I I would say, you know, this is, we've been talking a lot on the podcast or you guys have been talking a lot on the podcast, the last few episodes about not just what the, the addict or the alcoholic goes through, but the impact on the family. And I, I would say that, this is an example of something where Chris's behavior, even if it wasn't just related to taking drugs, the other things that were going on in his life and the other things that he was doing because of the situation he was in, you know, really affected us as a family. I, I can remember getting a phone call and a letter from, you know, the, the college board saying, you know, we're sorry, but your son cheated on the SATs and so we can't accept his score and, you know, he's going to have to take it over again. And, 
And I remember mom and I just saying, this can't be true. Like, how do you cheat on the SAT? It's impossible, right? They must have gotten it wrong. Um, you know, and I remember us being in a situation where I was going to fight to the end to, to make sure they overturned that decision because I wouldn't, I just couldn't believe that it actually really could have happened. And, you know, there were lots of situations like that where we would come to Chris's defense, even though the reality was, you know, we were on the wrong side of the discussion. Mm-hmm. Now, I think the impact of, of, things like that on the family are often overlooked, you know, well, you know, the family's not impacted. It's just the addict. I, I don't think that's true at all. Yeah. And I think I'll, because I've, you know, I said in my episode too, I've done a ton of reflecting back. I think exactly the scenario that you mentioned or any of the scenarios where, where, you know, Chris had done something, he was always his lovable, like Chris self that we all always wanted around. So it was like, not every second because we're all you know we're all in our heads sometimes but I feel like Chris never lost his charm and never lost you know the part of him that we loved so there wasn't anything so drastic that it was crazy and because of that I never actually when Mark interviewed me I was saying I, I don't remember feeling a ton of shame I always rooted for you Chris because I always was like no he's good like he's gonna figure it out like we're, we're good as a family I, I don't remember anything crazy but yes like those individual moments definitely and especially looking back um not a, not a ton of those played a huge role um for me but but I can understand that looking back on that it's like Chris was always Chris Chris was always there as himself but the little things that were happening definitely built up. Um, and that's what we talk about quite a bit is just how does it actually affect the family as well as the addict? So thanks for sharing that. And so you said that you, the moment that you felt like he really did have a problem was the moment of him stealing money, correct? That's, that's my recollection. Yeah. That I, that I could always sort of explain away other situations or things that were happening that really you know, or bad luck or just, you know, his karma or whatever else. But then when I actually saw him physically doing it yeah. and taking money from me is when I said, okay, this is not normal and something really bad's going on. And, um, and you know, the worst day of my life, my, my, in the house we lived in at the time, I had my office in the front room that faced up the driveway. And, you know, the worst moment of my life was when, I saw Chris with his hockey bag and his backpack and a pillow and something else walking up the driveway. And I never, I, I honestly never, I, I thought to myself, I wonder if I'll ever see him again. Mm. That must've been so tough. Yeah. There were, there were a number of times I would see him walk down the driveway and, and yeah. again, I'd think to myself, I don't know if I'll ever see him again. Yeah. And, and not to be, not to sound harsh or anything, but, when you know after the so he went to rehab the second time i remember having to come back from washington dc from a business trip because mom said look i got to bring him to greensboro again and i don't know what to do i'm on my wits end and so i had to cancel my business meetings and fly back home you know that day or whatever and i I remember the second time he was in rehab i i remember after he got out the second time and, you know, we wouldn't let him back to the house again. And he was living, you know, who knows where he was. I had no idea where he was. All I knew is he had a car. Um, and that he, he told us he had a job out in Greensboro. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and that he was bopping around between places to live out there. And, um, you know, I, I remember those days, I mean, for weeks and months on end, wondering whether, you know, whether I'd ever see him again yeah. and kind of came to that realization, which wasn't a place I wanted to be in my life, but I, I didn't know how to help him. Right. Other than, other than throwing money at it, which, which, you know, we can talk about enabling later, but other than throwing money at things and, and getting him transportation if he needed it and, you know, paying for rehab and, and whatever else, I didn't know what to do. So I kind of became resigned to the fact that the, it was sort of out of my control. It was in God's hands and, and Chris had to fix it on his own. I, you know, that's stuff we learned later on that yeah. it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what I did or how I behaved or what decisions I made. I wasn't going to be able to fix it. And so I had to face my own reality of the fact that, you know, my only son might not come back. Yeah. So. And when what, so speak a bit about how you were feeling. I mean, you, you just started down the path, but how did you handle the, the window of learning he had an issue till he came back from Texas. Like, tell us a bit more about how you were feeling, what kind of conversations, like, did you go internal and think about yourself? I know I did. Um, like how, any sort of additional reflection or stories or thoughts that you had like throughout the entire time um, that would be helpful to people that are going through this? Well, I think you go through the gamut of emotions and thoughts. And I, you know, I remember, the underlying thought forever, even to this day is, you know, what should I have done differently? What could I have done differently? You know, was I too lenient? Was I, were we not strict enough? Were we, did we look the other way when we knew things were going on? I mean, there's, there's, you know, a lot of it was, was sort of guilt, right? What did I do wrong? What did mom do wrong? Is mom too lenient? Am I too lenient? Do we just not work together? Well, I mean, you know, as far as I knew, you guys were all good, right? Um, and and I, I just remember, as I said earlier, I, I think there was a prolonged period of time where I just realized there was nothing I could do. And it was kind of like, I don't think I ever had this conversation with Chris, but it was kind of like, you're on your own, good luck, you know, hope you make it. And And of course, that's never the way I wanted to feel as a dad at all. No way. Um, you know, I, I wanted to feel like I was there supporting him and making the right decisions and doing the right things. And, you know, at some point you, you have to come to the realization that it's out of your hands. That's, that's, that's the hardest feeling I think I ever had. Yeah. And on the flip side of things. Um, so we've heard a ton of stories about the rehabs and Chris and um, his friends have done such a great job of painting the picture of what those experiences are like, but at what point did you come to terms with the fact that he is recovered, that he was, it was different from the time that he went into Texas? Yeah. So I think the time that I recall that I felt like this may actually be working was when he called and he was all excited. He said, Hey, I've done so well here at the facility and in, in the other facility in Texas, I've done so well here. You know, my story's gotten out. People like the fact that I'm, you know, I remember him saying, you know, I'm, I'm a big advocate of the big book and you got to follow the program. And, mm-hmm. 
and people at this other facility have heard my story and they really feel like I can be helpful there. And so they've told me to pack up my stuff, get a one-way bus ticket. And we've got a place for you to live and room and board and you can work here and make money and do whatever. I, I think that's the first time I really felt like maybe there was a light at the end of the tunnel because even when he was, even when he went to Texas at first, and, and, you know, mom really believed in all the research she did that this was the right place for him to go, which I didn't really know much about it. I was kind of like, and I wasn't pessimistic, but I would say I was sort of like, well, here we go again. Yeah. And, you know, then I heard that he was sort of done with his treatment and now he was work, you know, living in a sober home and he was working with some other guys you know, on a ranch and doing this kind of stuff. I, I, I still always kind of felt like, well, it's just a matter of time before, you know, he goes back into it. Right. So I was pessimistic until I would say at the time that, you know, he, he felt, I felt that he was genuinely excited that he had this opportunity to go to this other place and help people get better. Yeah. Um, Again, it was he was it was still you know thousand miles away, right? So how do you know what's really going on? Yeah. But then, you know, the the next sort of place that I felt there was hope was when he decided to come back home and get a you know a high tech job and and get into sales and all that, uh, which I thought was a great idea. Although I didn't think it was a good idea that he come back to to Raleigh. Um, I always kind of felt like scene of the crime, he's going to yeah. be surrounded by the same people and he's going to, you know, fall into the same behaviors and it's just going to be a train wreck. Yeah. Um, but he proved us all wrong and, Thank you know, you. he, he, you know, stayed true to himself and his program and, you know, excelled in the job that he was in and he was making a lot of money and, um, you know, had a, had a really good life and then he got promoted and sent to sent to Ireland to to open up an office and, and hire a bunch of salespeople. And I, you know, that's when I knew he was kind of on the right track. Sorry. Sorry to talk about you while you're in the room, Chris. <laughs> I'm just listening. It's great. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And so I would say dad now, super positive note. What are you most, pr sorry, Chris is your, your, I know. Hold you're on one second. I have yeah. one comment to make. Yeah. Go one on. thing that I remember that kind of, um, and I hope you don't take this the wrong way, dad, because it was, it was just one lack of knowledge and two, just not expecting me to stay. This is how much I believe they were kind of like convinced that I wasn't going to get better because of how long it took. Yeah. Um, when I came home for the first time, when I was nine months over before I got that offer to go work at the rehab, I made my amends in person and sat down. And when you make an amend, you go, you know, this is what I've done to you to cause you harm in our life, mm -hmm. X, Y, and Z. And then you, you, you stop and you say, you know, is there anything that I've left out to cause you harm that I'm unaware of? And I remember dad looked me in the eye in, in Megan's room and he said, you know, I just wish that things wouldn't have turned out this way. And it was kind of a moment where it, it hurt me in the very moment that it happened. And I called my sponsor uh, at the time. And I was like, Hey, you know, this was his response. And he was like, look, your, your opinion towards your dad's response is invalid because you caused a lot of harm and that's the way he feels. So you need to allow him to feel that way. And I, and I, 
think it was really cool to hear that because it was the first amends that I had made aside from an old employer that I had spoken to where someone kind of like didn't even let me have it at all. Just kind of was just like, yeah, I, I wasn't super pumped about you the way that you were doing things. And I wish it didn't really turn out this way. And I remember saying, you know, I'm happy things turned out this way because of what it has done in my life. And since then, I think even a couple months after that happened, dad really started learning a lot about the program and about recovery. And he saw that I was actually doing well. And it was probably the first time he had ever seen me not try to manipulate and lie through my actions. Yeah. And that's kind of what the amends process is all about is like watching the person's actions after they've, after they've, you know, um, had an opportunity to do that. And one other thing that was really cool for me that made me realize that things were actually working was I was with mom and dad in the kitchen on that same trip. And it was after I had made amends to both of them. And we were at the sink in the King Post house uh, after dinner. And um, they looked at me and it was either mom or dad. But um, one of them said, you know, what's really cool, Chris? And I was like, what? And they were like, you have integrity now. And I swear to God, this shows how unintelligent I am. Uh, I was like, what's, it, what's integrity? Chris. Uh, I'm not kidding. I literally don't know what integrity was. And, and they said, when you say you're going to do something, you're doing it. And when, you're, when you say you're going to show up on time to something, you're showing up on time. And, you know, that's what we've always hoped that you'd turn out to be. And that's when I was like, oh, wow, I guess this whole program and recovery thing is, is working because I wasn't aware that that's what I had turned into. It just kind of happened through working the, the steps and the principles. And, that's what I want my parents to say about me is, you know, my son does what he says he's going to do. And my son is an honest man and, and follows through and, and uh, does the right thing when no one's looking. And, and instead of like how successful or, mm-hmm. you know, the sobriety thing is cool and all, but to hear your parents say like, you do what you say you're going to do and you're an honest man. Like that's a pretty fulfilling feeling to hear. Huge. So. Cause then anything else after that is like just cherry on top. Right. <laughs> yeah. Who cares about all the other stuff? Right. That's a good segue. So dad now in, in, in the um, post struggle world and Chris's recovery, what are you like, what's your, what's your proudest moment, proudest moment, or what are you most proud of for, for Chris? Yeah, I don't think I have a proudest moment. It was probably uh, some hockey tournament he won or something. But <laughs> but I would say uh, the the most remarkable thing to me is that back in the dark days, you know, watching him walk up the driveway, and this is sort of related to what Chris just explained. But when when I thought all hope was lost, honestly, like there's nothing I can do for this guy and I feel really bad for him, but I can't help him. Um, I can't ever believe him. Everything he says to me is a lie. You know, he, he is a manipulator. He's manipulated. He takes advantage of his mom. He's, you know, and and I, it, it wasn't any ever, it wasn't ever any feeling of hatred or whatever. Well, those are all facts. Well, (laughs) yeah, that's true. But, you know, I didn't, I don't ever remember putting that all together and saying, and therefore I think he's this evil, terrible person. Right. Um, I just always 
I, I never thought I would see the transformation that we've seen where I don't, I believe everything Chris tells me now. I don't think he, I don't think he would lie to me about something. Now, maybe he would, I don't know, but I, I don't, I don't, all of that was washed away. And, you know, this is, Chris has his spiritual higher power and somebody that he believes is in control. And, you know, we, we believe that as well. I, I think, I think the most remarkable thing to me is how much of a transformation it's been. It's not been, well, now he's kind of a better guy Yeah. and you know, yeah, he's not using anymore, but you know, it's, it's a complete transformation where I believe he's in, in control of his life through his behaviors and, and his diligent respect of the program and the process. And, and he, you know, and Chris, I know you know you have to do things a certain way and be really rigid about it because, you know, that's the way you're going to stay sober. So I, I, I just think the proudest thing to me is the remarkable transformation and how, you know, he's back to the guy that we always knew when, you know, like you, you guys described him as, you know, the most lovable guy in the world and funny and, and all of that. And here we go talking about him while he's in the room again. But I, I well, think that's really cool stuff to hear. I mean, it's flattering. Yeah. And yeah, humbling. I think I think it's I think it's the complete and the complete transformation is the thing that's the most remarkable to me, Jackie. And I guess I, I wouldn't say proud because I didn't do it. Um, I'm yeah. I'm I'm proud of Chris because he did it. Yeah. Um, so that's probably what I'm most proud of for him. Yeah. But, you know, this is just it's another situation where you have to look back on all the things that transpired and said, it's the individual person themselves that have to help themselves. You can't, you can help somebody get the right kind of help, but you can't fix what's wrong with them. No, I, I actually love how you answer that because it's, it's a really good summary of how I feel too. It's just seeing the transformation. And now I'm like, I feel like I'm like jumping cloud to cloud. Cause I'm just like, so I'm so happy for you, Chris, and just proud and like all of the positive things. And it's, and it's not that we wouldn't have been like happy or anything if, if things wouldn't have gone, you know, if the transformation wouldn't have happened, but it's just like this, like, I just want to scream it. And I, you know, that's why the podcast oh, is that's cool to hear about it. And it's like, it's really, really cool. <laughs> the cool thing too is, you know, our family's awesome and we're all supportive and we want to root for each other and we want each other to succeed. But the, the coolest thing about this program and, and recovery in general, and that's why when we talk about the way that like I went through the work and how it was done when the program was, you know, originally started and, and how we say like you're supposed to go through the 12 steps quickly and, and you're supposed to help other people is because if you're not going through the work and, and transforming and having this psychic change, uh, quickly, you're you're pretty much just removing the alcohol and the drugs from a person and just leaving them dry to sit there and be the same person they were. But all of a sudden, just because you remove alcohol and drugs from them, all of a sudden they're going to transform. And no, that's not the case. Like right. the the root of every alcoholic and, and drug addict's problems is selfishness and self-centeredness and it doesn't mean they're bad people it just means 
they constantly think about themselves in a negative way, which also makes them think about themselves in a in a higher uh, superior way because it's overcompensating and it's all this this fear driven thought process that causes us to to act in a way where it causes us to manipulate people and it, it makes us make decisions based off of fear and if you just remove the drugs and alcohol from me i'm still that same person that feels like he needs to control his life through willing my way through everything and and, and white knuckling it and the best gift that any family can be given or any drug addict and alcoholic can be given from this program is that uh, there's a new way of living that has has a, a solution to all of their problems and not just the drug and alcohol problem and there's millions of people out there that have families that are looking at them going man you've really changed as a person and i'm proud of you not because you're staying sober because I could relapse tomorrow if I don't do what yeah. I'm supposed to do. But what I've gained from this whole thing is I I feel as if I've had a transformation as a human being. And it's only because I've been forced to change and I've been forced to pick up like a spiritual toolkit that my life depends on. And in return, you know, the people around me can trust me in their homes and can trust me with their, you know, kids and can trust me around their money. and they couldn't do that before, you know? Yeah. yeah. Thank you for reiterating that too. And it's, it's a good, uh, a good segue into my next question for dad. And as we're talking about kind of transformation and what you've seen in Chris, how have you changed or what have you taken away from the whole experience of going through this? And um, specifically for those on the phone who might be a dad or a parent or a loved one listening, um, how, how have you changed and what would you give as advice uh, for those listening. So in terms of, I don't know if I want to frame it in terms of how I've changed. I, I think the most important thing to me is how much I've learned through this process about, well, enablement, number one, mm -hmm. and how one of the biggest roadblocks for anybody that's an alcoholic or an addict getting better is the enablement that the people around them uh, I don't know if the word is provide, but the enablement that happens that allows them to stay in that place because it's not, then it's not difficult to get out of it. And I, I'll give you an example. If I, if I understood that, you know, buying Chris a car and giving him cash and not really questioning the things that I saw that were odd to me, if I realized that that was getting him deeper and deeper into his problem, I would have understood how to maybe be tougher and say, no, I'm not going to give you 40 bucks because, you know, I don't know what you're going to do with it. Now, that's easy for me to say now, but I, I just I had no understanding of the behaviors that mom and I and others were were going through at the time were so enabling. You know, one funny story, I think it's funny, one, one story that uh, you and I have talked about earlier is. Mom, mom was a big Dr. Phil advocate and, and learned a lot of her initial, got a lot of her initial sort of background and education on addiction from some of the Dr. Phil shows she watched. And we were watching one episode one night. I'll never forget this. Um, there was a, a guy and his, uh, and his wife and their two twin sons who were 20 years old. 
they were both raging addicts and alcoholics, uh, out of control. Parents didn't know what to do. And the dad told the story about um, how he had bought the boys a car so that they could go to work at this job they were both working at. And they totaled it. And they had to get to work somehow. So he bought them another one. And they totaled that one. And then he was going to go out and buy him another car. And I remember Dr. Phil's reaction, looking at the guy saying, are you out of your mind? Like, what's wrong with you? <laughs> he said, you bought him a car. They totaled it. You bought him another one. They totaled it. Now you're going to go buy him another one. And I remember laughing at the TV saying, I did that. Yeah, right. <laughs> that was me. Right. <laughs> um, you know, every time, I mean, Chris totaled three different cars. Right. And, and, but I, I remember thinking to myself at that point, wow, I really contributed to this. Yeah. And, you know, thinking I was doing the right thing. It, it's easy, for instance, when you, when you start to justify things because maybe it makes your life easier yeah. and not the addict's life better. Mm-hmm. You know, why was I buying Chris a third car? Um, figure out how to get to work on your own, right? It, it's not up to me to fix his, the problems he got himself into. It's just, um, this is the advice I have, I think, for people who are really stuck and they don't know what to do is your gut instinct on how to help the addict or the alcoholic, especially if it's one of your kids, is to fix their problems, throw money at things, um, take the obstacle of being successful away by providing and giving them things and money and whatever else, which is the exact opposite of what you should be doing. Right. And it's counterintuitive. And, you know, one thing I would say is think about what's helpful to the addict, not what makes your life easier. Right. Mom and I would probably have been inconvenienced a whole lot if we had made the right kind of decisions Mm -hmm. for Chris. Yeah. But the fact that you're going to be inconvenienced, oh my gosh, I, I don't have time to drive him to work every day and I don't have time to, you know, bring him to meetings and I don't have time to do this and to do that. Well, you know what? Maybe being inconvenienced is better for the health of the person that's going through this. Mm. And, and that's, that's not, a not, not a medical diagnosis, just an observation of, of it's, it's counterintuitive Enablement is counterintuitive because you think you're doing the right thing when you're doing exactly what you shouldn't be doing. Right. And, and I don't know how to teach that other than to give examples of situations where I look back now and I realize that when I gave him 40 bucks or when I bought him a car or when I made it easier for him to do things, it was actually helping him get deeper and deeper into trouble. Yeah. Awesome. Chris, any other um, questions, comments for dad while we still have him finally on the line? <laughs> I don't think so. I think that this was an incredible podcast. So I, I think we've said this a couple of times and I'm not just saying this, but I think this was my favorite episode because <laughs> I've never sat down and talked to dad for an hour and a half about his perspective on mm-hmm. the my story and addiction. And I really love your perspective dad and i think that um we tell you guys all the time but you guys did such an incredible job with us and i respect you so much for staying um supportive but firm and and 
you know, I, I have learned, I never really knew how to open up to you um, because I was always like living a double life and I was scared and yada, yada, yada. But I just feel like if I am going through anything, it's easy to bring, you know, something to the table to you and talk to you about it. And that's a, that's a pretty cool gift that I've received through uh, going through this. And, and I'm really grateful for that. So. Yeah, I appreciate that, Chris. And it is, you know, it's a wonderful thing that our relationship certainly has gotten better. Um, not that it was ever really that terrible, but I think, you know, the thing that I take from, from all of this experience and certainly experience doing this podcast is, um, you know, this really isn't a story about me. It, it really should be just a dialogue for us to be able to, to help other people that may be going through the same situations maybe make some different decisions or recognize things earlier or realize that they're not alone. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that's what I hope comes out of this is that, you know, there's somebody in the similar situation that we were in or I was in at a certain time and something that we've shared with them, you know, triggers a behavior or, or an action that can get out in front of the problem earlier than not for their loved ones. Cause you know, we, as you guys have said many times, you know, we didn't have a manual, right. We kind of went through this, not knowing what to do, where to turn, how to handle it. And, you know, we're, we're very blessed and lucky that, you know, we're in the situation we are now. And Chris is um, the kind of man and the kind of human being he is because, you know, there were, as I said earlier in the podcast, there were certain days for a long time where I felt like I may never see him again. So yeah. hopefully it's all good and we can help some people and, uh, and, and give some people some hope and some tools to, to deal with a situation that is not instinctively easy to deal with. So thanks for doing this, Jackie. Yeah, of course. It's sort of uh, healing to yes. to talk about this. And um, Chris, you know, as usual, I, I think you're a remarkable guy and I'm really proud of you. And, uh, you know, thanks for helping us through this process. Well, you are too. And you guys are awesome. And once again, I hope it helps anybody that's listening. And that's the whole purpose of all this. And life is pretty cool. I I love you guys so much. And um, I know that if I was ever struggling again in the future and needed you guys to be there for me, you would and you wouldn't enable me, but you would be there if I told you I needed help. And that's what is really important for families and friends to understand is, you know, don't make people feel guilty or shame them if they need help, but obviously don't allow them to walk all over you. So, yep. Cool. Uh, episode number 15 stories are out there. Uh, Dad, thank you cool. so much for joining. That was a blast, as always. Chrissy, until next time. And Dad, love you yep. like crazy. Love you guys. Okay. Love you. Take love care. you.